It's been a difficult time for many this past 10 days with all that has gone on in the life of our church body, grieving over the sudden loss of one of our precious family members, and with the preparations for Hurricane Ian and now watching the devastation that has occurred as a result down in Fort Myers and Naples and the surrounding area. If you're like me, you've experienced a flood of conflicting emotions as a result of these things. And I wish I could say something this morning that would make it all go away, to make everything okay, but I I feel so inadequate, so ill-equipped. But I know one who can and does comfort the downhearted, who gives hope in times of trouble, and that is our sovereign and holy God. So what I want to do this morning is ask you to the best of your ability to clear your minds of all the thoughts and emotions that you have racing through your veins and focus with me this morning on our holy and loving God. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 57. Our primary text this morning will be only one verse. One very important verse. Verse 15 of Isaiah 57. As you're turning there, I want to introduce our study this morning with an important statement. And it's this. Everything depends on one's conception of God. Let me say that again. Everything depends on one's conception of God. Whether it be individually as a person corporately as a church, or even as a country or nation. Everything rises and falls and ultimately depends on one's concept of God. If that concept is accurate, then the person, the church, and even a nation has a better chance of being spiritually healthy. And the inverse is certainly true. If one has an inaccurate conception of God, the person, the church, the nation will absolutely be unhealthy and in fact, at the very least, be in danger of God's discipline and may possibly even be in danger of God's wrath. The prophet Isaiah over the course of his ministry was constantly confronted with Israel's impoverished conception of God. I use the word impoverished because it paints the picture of someone who is missing vital nutrients. One whose diet is lacking in the proper nourishment. And so it was in Israel at the time of Isaiah's ministry. And Isaiah contributed this impoverished view of God to the national degradation that was occurring. It was this faulty concept of God that had led them back into idolatry and all kinds of unrighteous behavior. And I do not think it's a stretch to apply this truth to our country today. I think a lot of what is going on in our country as well as around the world is a degradation in the culture due to a faulty and impoverished view of God. And the church is not immune. Unfortunately, the degradation in the culture is happening in many churches as they reimagine and adopt the culture's concept of God instead of the Bible's revelation of God. 
When you read and study Isaiah's writings, you'll find that the people wrongly thought that they could appease God by gifts and sacrifices, even though they were brought by dirty hands. They thought they could live unrighteous any way they wanted, and if they just brought God a sacrifice, it would appease Him. They also wrongly thought that God was far off and unattached. The result of this faulty thinking about God was an immoral and irresponsible lifestyle. If you look back at chapter 56 of Isaiah, you'll see that Isaiah ended chapter 56 with the rebuke of the religious leaders who were living immorally and responsibly. In verse 10 and 11 of chapter 56, he says, His watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Isaiah is saying that the religious leaders have gone astray. They have followed their own lust and greed and have forsaken God. The degradation, the turning away begins with the watchmen, with the shepherds, with the leaders. And now in chapter 57, if we had time to read it all, we'd see that the people follow their leaders into sin. Isaiah now rebukes the people individually for living immorally and irresponsibly. In chapter 57, verse 3, he calls them sons of sorcerers, offspring of adulterers and loose women. In verse 5 he says, You who burn with lust among the oaks, under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys. Under the immoral and irresponsible leaders, the people followed in their footsteps. The people themselves have turned to immorality, to idolatry, to all kinds of evil. And all of it stems from a faulty conception of God. And in the following verses, Isaiah paints a picture of the judgment and the destruction that's coming. In verse 11 through the first part of 13, Isaiah speaks for God and he says, Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time and you did not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you, the wind will carry them off. A breath will take them away. Solomon made a statement when he said that there's nothing new under the sun and isn't that so true? I see so much similarity of what was happening in the land of Israel during Isaiah's time and what's happening today in our cultures. The leaders had a faulty conception of God and had grown lax in teaching His Word and holding fast to the truths that God had proclaimed and the people followed their example. And as a result, all kinds of disobedience and sinful lifestyle now permeated the land. Isn't that what is happening here in our culture? As the liberal seminaries pump out pastors and teachers that have a low view of God and His Word, pulpits have been filled with men and even women who are not teaching the Word of God. They are mouthing words that have scripture mingled in, but the whole counsel of God is not proclaimed. In many churches, it's been replaced with motivational and inspirational speeches that may give God lip service, picking and choosing scripture for a particular theme, but omitting whole sections of scripture. They don't want to offend someone. 
They don't want to preach something that's difficult. They want to talk about a God of their own making that wants us all to be happy. Ken Ham talked about this a couple of weeks ago when he was here and he spoke about the divided nation, a culture in chaos, and the conflicted church. This was what was happening in Isaiah's time. And the reason it was happening, in part, was because the leaders and the people of Israel had a faulty concept of God. But Isaiah does still have hope. As you come to verse 14, Isaiah shares a word from God that is encouraging, that there's still hope, that God in His mercy has not given up on all of them. He says in verse 14, And it shall be said, Build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstacle from my people's way. Isaiah is in essence saying, even though many of you have fallen away and are doing detestable things before the Lord, he's not done with his chosen people. God will remove the obstacles and clear the path for them to come back. And now as we come to our text that we want to look at closely this morning, verse 15, Isaiah is going to make a statement about God and a statement from God. When taken together, will present two concepts about God that are critically important. Two concepts that when properly understood will and do give us hope. These two concepts are so important that I am not hesitant to say that everything depends upon our understanding of these two concepts. Listen as I read the first part of verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Isaiah is about to bring forth a word from God, but before he does, he makes a statement about God. He gives a description of God, a vivid description, an accurate description of the God he knew and worshipped. And in these words, we learn from Isaiah the first critically Important concept about God. Concept number one concerns God's holiness. God is holy. Isaiah had a correct understanding about the character and the nature of God. He had a grasp of the concept of God's holiness. His uniqueness. His majestic nature. In his statement about the character of God, he gives several descriptions of God. Specifically, he gives three descriptions. He describes God as the one who is high and lifted up, as the one who inhabits eternity, and whose name is holy. So what I want to do for a few moments is take each of these descriptions and expound upon them. The first description is high and lifted up. Isaiah described God as high and lifted up. This relays several important truths about God. It presents the truth that God is above all else. In theological terms, this is called His transcendence. God transcends everything and everyone. He is not on the same level as anyone or anything. You may remember that in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah was given a vision of God and he describes it and he says, God high and lifted up and sitting on His throne. This implies authority. 
God is the ultimate authority. Contrary to what many think, you do not give God authority in your life. He is the authority in your life. One may temporarily choose to not submit to God's authority, but in the end, they will. He is their creator. Does not the creator have the right to exert his authority on his creation? That's why in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that Jesus was given the name above all names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is no escape from that. Those who choose to temporarily not submit to God will eventually yield. They will have no choice in the matter. High and lifted up encompasses so many of God's attributes. He's unique. He is unlike us. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His knowledge, His omniscience is infinite. His power, His omnipotence is endless and immeasurable. He is infinitely wise, high and lifted up in sovereignty and authority, reigning in complete and total authority. When we correctly understand this truth, it helps us in times of trouble, doesn't it? Nothing that is happening down here takes God by surprise. He is not just watching what is going on. He is working in the circumstances to bring about His providential plan and glory. Nothing thwarts or detours His plans. He doesn't react to events taking place here on earth. He is behind the events taking place here on earth. He's so beyond us in every way. If it were not for the Spirit helping us, I don't think we could comprehend anything about God. How do you understand one who can speak the universe into creation? Whose mere thoughts cause everything to happen according to His will? One who uses kings and kingdoms to do His bidding. God, Isaiah said, is high and lifted up. But he doesn't stop there. Isaiah goes on to shed more light on the God's character and His holiness by saying He inhabits eternity. God had no beginning. He has no end. He has always been. He always will. He is self-existent. Can you really fathom that truth? Everything we experience in our lives is just the opposite. Everything we know has a beginning and an end. It's hard for my little brain to wrap its mind around. God has no beginning and He has no end. That's what inhabiting eternity means. There's a saying that you may have heard some Catholics say, talking about Mary, they call her Holy Mary, Mother of God. Now I know that's referring to her as the earthly mother of Jesus, but I think it does an injustice to the glory of God. How could Mary be the mother of God? Mary wasn't back there before God. She is the mother of the body of Jesus and nothing more. The eternal God is the one who compressed himself into the womb of Mary. 
Now Mary is special among women, for she was used by God as a channel for Him to come into this world. But before Mary was, God was. Before Abraham was, God was. Before Adam was, God was. Before the world, the stars, the mountains, the seas, God was. And God will ever be. God inhabits eternity. He is self-existing. He needs no air to breathe, no matter to exist, no sustainer or sustainment outside of Himself. He's not bound by time or space or anything external. He is self-existent. No one, no thing compares to Him because nothing or no one inhabits eternity. God summed it up Himself, I think, when Moses asked Him to tell Him His name. Do you remember how God responded? He didn't say all the different names we have that we called God by. He said, I am that I am. God is not becoming. All of creation is becoming and changing. God is. I am. He is, exists within Himself. He is the only I am. Man at times tries to say I am, that there is no God, that man just exists out of nothing, that he was not created, that he has no creator, or he's, that he's indebted to, no planner, no one that thought him out, he just exists. That's a lie. Straight from Satan's mouth. Only God can say in capital letters, I am. God alone is high and lifted up. God alone inhabits eternity. And thirdly, Isaiah describes him as the one whose name is holy. Now this isn't specifically saying the name Yahweh or the name Jehovah is holy. This means his being, his essence, his entirety is completely set apart, perfect in every way, completely and totally righteous. Holiness is one of those things that's somewhat hard to define. It relates to being separated from common use, sacred, set apart, especially by virtue of being clean and pure. Well, God sets the standard of what holy is because He is the essence of what holy is. God is not holy because He keeps the rules. God wrote the rules. God is not holy because He keeps the law. The law is holy because it reveals who God is. God is holy just because He is God. There is no such thing as holiness outside of God. God is the essence of holiness. Now when you research this term in Scriptures, one of the things you'll find about holiness is it includes the meaning of rarity and value and uniqueness. For something to be of great value, it usually means it's rare, it's unique, it's one of a kind. Well, God is infinite of value because He is absolutely unique and rare. Listen to a few scriptures that relay this truth. 1 Samuel 2.2 There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. Isaiah 40.25 To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? says the Holy One. Hosea 11.9 I am God and not a man, 
the Holy One in your midst. When someone encountered God in Scripture, we read someone that encountered God, what usually happened? They fell on their face, didn't they? Even in a partial state of His glory, when they encountered God, they usually ended up on the ground. Remember what happened to Saul at the time on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9? He encountered a bright light that shone around him and he fell to the ground as the Lord spoke to him. When the Lord told him to get up, he realized that he was blinded by the light of God's glory. Something similar happened to Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. Maybe read a few verses in Matthew 17, beginning in verse 1. We are told, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I would make three tents here. One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking. When behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground on their faces and were terrified. And these are not isolated accounts. We see this happening all the time in Scriptures. In Revelation 1, when God gave John a vision of the risen Lord and His glory, verse 17 says, John collapsed at the feet of Jesus as a dead man. Daniel, Ezekiel, Joshua, Abraham, all fell on their face before the Lord when He appeared or spoke to them. When they encountered and experienced the glory and the holiness of God. Now, I do believe it's possible though to be saved and to not fully understand the depth of this concept of the character and the holiness of God. I actually do not think all that many people understand it at the time of their conversion. I'm sure some do. But I'm also sure not all people have this same level of depth and understanding that Isaiah had. And I don't think Isaiah always had this level of understanding. If you remember back in chapter 6, God gave him that vision that most likely impacted him and his understanding of God's holiness in a way that changed him forever. Let's turn back to chapter 6. I know I read it during the scripture time, but I want to read it again. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne high and lifted up. And the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face. With two He covered His feet. And with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This passage 
deserves a sermon all to itself. But let me just ask the question. Do you think Isaiah had a better understanding of God's holiness after this? Of course he did. I'm sure he was never the same after this experience of encountering God's glory and holiness. You older folks like me will remember Chuck Colson. He was the politician who worked at the White House for President Richard Nixon. He was involved in the Watergate scandal. And he was later convicted of a felony for his involvement. And he was sentenced to prison. But in the middle of that crisis in his life, he was introduced to Jesus Christ in 1973 by the president of Raytheon at the time, a man by the name of Tom Phillips, who shared the gospel with him. He used C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. That night, Chuck gave his life to Jesus Christ, and in his words, he began the greatest adventure of his life. He went on to found prison fellowship, and he spent the rest of his life in faithful Christian service. But something I didn't know about him, I learned from a message I heard not too long ago. I heard a pastor tell of how Chuck Colson, several years after he had been saved, came to a point in his life where he had to repent of what he called a very inadequate view of God. He said it was a very dry season and a friend suggested to him to read the book by R.C. Sproul called God's Holiness. And after reading that, listen to the words that Chuck Colson wrote about this experience. He said, by the end of the sixth lecture, I was on my knees deep in prayer, in awe of God's holiness. It was a life-changing experience as I gained a completely new understanding of the holy God I believe in and worship. According to Chuck Colson, this more complete and accurate concept of God's holiness changed his life. That experience has happened to many of God's children. It happened to Chuck Colson. I believe it happened to Isaiah. It also happened to Job. Do you remember how the book of Job starts in verse 1? Job 1 says, There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. On the surface, it doesn't sound like Job could get any better. Blameless, upright, God-fearing, turns away from evil, but the story continues. And God in His providence allowed Satan to strike Job with all manner of suffering. And then page after page, chapter after chapter, we read how Job questions and wrestles with God. Until finally God speaks to Job. In chapter 38 of Job, beginning in verse 1, He said, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dressed for action like a man, I will question you and you make it known to me. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. And God continues along this line of speaking to Job, putting forth questions to him to help Job draw contrast to God's greatness and Job's insignificance. After Job hears this and continues through this, he's, he's learning from God, he's changing, and he's growing in his understanding. And, 
After several chapters of this, Job finally speaks in chapter 40, verse 4 and 5, and he says, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. I have spoken once, I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. You see the growth that Job is experiencing? But God's not done. God continues for two more chapters. He spears Job with penetrating questions that establish God's holiness and supremacy beyond anything Job has ever dwelt upon. Verse 9 of chapter 40, God says, Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like His? In chapter 41, verses 1 and 2, He says to Job, Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? And he goes on and on with this line of questioning. Finally, in chapter 42, God quits talking and Job is left speechless. He repents and listen to what he says in chapter 42, beginning in verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. And in conclusion, Job says in verse 6, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Job said he knew about God. He had heard about God. But now he knows God personally. All the trials he's been through and the burden he bore led him closer to God. And through his trials and his subsequent questions and conversations with God, he's seen and experienced his holiness in a new and deeper way. And he would never be the same again. Isaiah was never the same. Chuck Colson was never the same. And no one, no individual, no church, no nation who experiences the character and the holiness of God in an intimate way can ever be the same. Because his conception of God will be changed. And it changes everything. I am convinced that one of the most serious flaws in our culture and even in the church today is our misconception about the character of God. Specifically, His holiness. We are so flippant and casual. Many times God is referred to as this grandpa-like figure who loves everybody. He's everybody's best friend. We can treat Him like one of the buddies. He accepts us for who we are and requires nothing in return. Give a little money to the church. Do a few good deeds and that will satisfy God. For after all, He's a loving God. Now, there's a measure of truth in this. But in many cases, I think we have taken them to extreme. Because when we do not start with an accurate understanding of the concept of God's holiness, everything else is distorted. The Bible teaches that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The Bible teaches us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because we stand before a holy and righteous God. A God who demands justice. 
A God who cannot be in the presence of sin. A God who is holy beyond our mind's comprehension. A healthy view of God's holiness is where a healthy relationship with God begins. The degradation that was happening in Isaiah's day was happening because they had departed from an accurate concept of God and who He was and they no longer had a healthy fear of a holy and just God. And that is exactly what is happening today in our culture. Immorality and sin has become more rampant as the culture has abandoned an accurate concept of a holy God. There is no fear, no acknowledgement of right and wrong, so everyone does what is right in his own eyes. But Scripture teaches that God does not contend with man forever. There will be a judgment because God is high and lifted up. He is sitting on His throne. He is eternal and holy and unlike sinful man and He will not tolerate sin and immorality and idolatry forever. But verse 15 doesn't just address this one aspect of God's uniqueness, His transcendence, His sovereignty, His authority, His holiness. Thankfully, it also addresses another critically important concept. And concept number two concerns God's heart. Let me read verse 15 again, this time in its entirety. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and, an important three-letter word, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. This God which no one can stand in His presence and look upon His glory. This God who is beyond our understanding has wisdom and power and authority beyond measure. This one who is the very essence of holiness and cannot tolerate sin. This God who dwells in the high and holy place, Isaiah tells us, also has a heart for His people, for His children. He wants to dwell with them. He has a heart for you and a heart for me. I love the words of the psalmist in Psalm 8. Verses 3 through 5 says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? If we stop there, we might think, yes, that's true. We're nothing but insignificant drops of dust in a vast universe. But verse 5 says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hand and you have put him all things under his feet. One of the outcomes of having an accurate understanding of God's holiness is it helps us to have an accurate understanding of ourselves, our nothingness, our minuteness, our sheer weightlessness as dust on a scale in light of what we bring to God's universe. In a world where we are told we need self-esteem and we're to take care of ourselves, that we are the most important thing in our universe, the reality is we are nothing outside of God. But the ironic part of that is that in spite of our nothingness and insignificance in the light of the greatness of God, that is not how God thinks about us. God cares deeply about us. He loves us beyond measure. 
He may be high and lifted up. He may dwell in the most high and holy place. Yet we are told here as throughout all Scripture that He also desires to dwell with us. I love the way that it's put in the story of Jesus coming to earth. It says that He came to earth and He dwelt among us. The word literally meant pitched a tent. He came to live with us daily. He wants to be a part of our lives. The whole Bible tells the story of how God cares about and has a heart for His people. It's summed up in that story of Him sending His Son to die for us. He made a way of salvation for us sinners. He's redeeming a people for Himself. Isaiah was alluding to this in verse 14 when he speaks of preparing a way, removing every obstruction from the path. And in verse 15 here, he speaks of reviving the spirit of the lowly and reviving the heart of the contrite. God is not content to stay high and lifted up to the point of maintaining the chasm between Himself and man. That's why He sent Jesus to earth to build that bridge, to prepare the way for us to make Himself accessible. What an amazing truth. This demonstrates the essence of God's heart towards His people. His love is on display. Yes, He's holy, righteous, just. His character demands justice. But He's also loving and kind and tender-hearted and forgiving towards His children and has prepared in advance a plan of redeeming Him. Sending His Son to pay the price for our sins so that His justice will be satisfied. Isaiah is telling us that God will do this. He will move mountains that get in the way to provide a clear path, a highway from our hearts to His. That's so important. Let me say it again. God may be high and lifted up, inhabiting eternity, holy above all else, and yet it's not His intention to let that chasm between us and Him remain. He will and He does move mountains to bring His children into fellowship with Him. That is the heart of God. But there is a condition to those who God will dwell with. He does not dwell with everyone, but according to our passage he dwells with those who are of contrite and lowly spirit. This doesn't mean that when and if we will become contrite and lowly in spirit that God will dwell with us. It means that as God works in your heart to open your eyes and understanding to see Him as He really is and yourself as you really are, He then imparts the faith for you to repent and believe. Then you will become a person with a contrite and lowly spirit. There is an inevitable result of a person that grasps these two concepts of God. When God grants a person the ability to fully experience and grasp the concept of His greatness, His holiness, and fully understands His own nature and depravity and what God has done for Him in reconciling us to this great and holy God, they become a certain type of people. And Isaiah tells us what that is. He says, He dwells with them who is of contrite and lowly spirit. So what is contrite? The Hebrew and in the New Testament, the Greek words translated contrite in Scripture mean crushed, crippled, broken. When used with heart, it often refers to a conscience that is crushed by the weight of its own guilt. 
A contrite heart doesn't justify its sin. It understands the depth of its own depravity. It offers no excuses, no blame shifting. It humbly accepts God's condemnation of sin and throws itself upon the mercy of God knowing that they deserve nothing but the righteous wrath of God. Without contrition, there is no repentance. It's one of those ways that you can discern the genuineness of a person's faith. If there is no remorse for their sin, if they've never been broken, if they were never understood their depravity and been grieved over it, then they probably were never saved. When you understand the holiness of God and your depravity, you will be broken over your sin. It will disgust you. You will not make jokes about it. You will not glory in your past wickedness. It will be detestable to you. A lowly spirit is similar to a contrite heart. It's simply humility. In the Beatitudes, Jesus said a similar thing. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A lowly spirit, the poor in spirit, are basically the same thing. It is someone who understands his spiritual bankruptcy. That he brings nothing to the table concerning his worthiness of the mercy and grace of God. Jesus illustrated what a contrite and lowly spirit looked like in Luke 18. In verses 9 through 14, Jesus tells the story of the two men who went up to the temple to pray. One was a religious leader, a Pharisee. The other, a social outcast, a tax collector. The former thanked God that he was not like other people, extortionists, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector who's standing far off. The other man, the tax collector, would not even look up to heaven. He wouldn't raise his head, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus announced that it was this man, not the other, who went home justified. That means right in the eyes of God. And our Lord concluded the story with these words, All who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. I think King David was such a person. Even though he committed grievous sins, he was called a man after God's own heart. Why? I think it was because David knew what a sinner he was. He knew what a holy God he served. And he knew how to come before God broken and repentant and contrite. If you have any doubt about that, read the Psalms. Especially Psalm 51. It's in Psalm 51 where David penned the words of a repentant, humble, broken-hearted man after Nathan had confronted him of his sin against God when he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband. David said in verse 16 that he'd offer God a sacrifice or a burnt offering, but he knew that wouldn't please God. So in verse 17 he said, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a contrite heart. A contrite and lowly spirit. These are identifying traits of a genuine believer who understands who God is and who they are in light of who God is. This is the type of person that walks with God, who dwells with the Almighty, one who has an accurate concept of the character and the holiness as well as the heart of our God. Isaiah's desire is to reacquaint the people of Israel with an accurate concept of who God is. He knows this is the reason that they're off track. 
if they could be reacquainted with the true nature of a holy God and his desire and love for them, he knows it would change everything. And isn't that true for us? If we, as individuals even, or as a church, or even as a country, if our concept of God is accurate, if we really understand His holiness, we would be different. The churches would be different. Our country would be different. And if we truly understand this truth, then we could be broken and humble over our sins. Then we would understand His grace and His mercy and it would affect every aspect of our life. A proper understanding of God changes everything. Everything depends on the conception of God. A faulty conception of God leads to immorality, disobedience, compromise, lukewarmness. A faulty conception of God leads a church astray, away from the absolutes and the authority of Scripture. A faulty conception of God leads to dethroning God and making your own idols. Ultimately, it will either end one of two ways. Either it will end in discipline or it will end in God's wrath. But for the one who embraces these truths and submits himself to God in brokenness with humility and loneliness of spirit, God will rescue them. He will revive them. He will take away their guilt and punishment that they deserve and they will experience His grace and mercy. And we will step down from our man-made thrones and bow to Him in humble obedience. And we will experience the joy of our salvation. So if you are here today and you have never encountered the holy living God, if you have never acknowledged Him as the Creator and the Lord of all things, if you've never come to grips with the truth that you will one day either experience His forgiving love or His righteous judgment, depending on what you do with His Son, Jesus, then I invite you to come up and talk to me after the service. I would love to tell you how you can be at peace with God for all eternity. But if you are a believer, which most of us are, you, like Chuck Colson, might need to repent for a, a very inadequate view of God. A high view of God is not only important doctrinally, it will change the way you live your life. If nothing else, I pray this message will encourage you to be reminded of how great and holy God is. And how He has a desire, a heart for His children. His imperfect children. How He longs for us to dwell with Him day by day and for all eternity. But we need to have that contrite and lowly heart. That is when we surrender, when we acknowledge His holiness, who we are in our weakness. We need Him. We surrender to Him. And that's our need as believers to do that. Will you pray with me? God, our minds can barely fathom how great you are. Your holiness, your character is so way beyond anything that we can even imagine in earthly terms. And Father, yet as we think and dwell upon those things, the truth that you 
have a heart for us is even more hard to fathom. And yet your word tells us that you do, that you love us, that you care for us, you want to walk with us daily. And Father, you've made a way for us to come to you through the blood of Jesus Christ. We just can't thank you enough for that truth. Father, as we leave this place, may we walk in a way that shows our understanding of these truths. May our interactions with others, may our interactions with our family and our brothers and sisters in Christ reflect the truths of your holiness and of your heart. And may we be changed because of it. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.